Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm here with Ashley Judd. Ash and I went through our Army Officer Training at the Royal Military College Duntroon uh, all the way back in 2007. Uh, Since then, Ash spent about eight years in the Army and is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, And due to his experiences of that war, uh, and because of the things he had uh, had to do in the line of duty, Ash faced significant challenges and was ultimately diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. In the years following, he became somewhat of a spokesperson for lifting the veil of shame on PTSD. Ash, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Great to be with you, Mas. Before we get into the experiences or your experiences of war, maybe let's backtrack a little. Uh, what, what made you join the army uh, uh, in the first place? Yeah, um, no, thanks for asking. It's, it's something I, I think about now, sort of like as I'm, you know, getting older and now have two kids, mm. the sort of the young man who made that decision to, to join the army in the first place seems like a million, a million years ago. Um, but probably like a, a, a couple of things. Like one was that I was really influenced by... Um, the attacks on September 11 um, and the Bali bombing. Mm. And so probably two things then studying, at, I was at the University of Sydney, I was studying economics and international relations. Um, so thinking about sort of national security policy, um, part of like my studies and what I was thinking about. And then uh, went on a student exchange to the University of Texas at Austin and sort of spent some time in 2004. So just a few years after, um, September 11 was in New York in 2004 when they still had sort of like mm. National Guard soldiers like at subway stops and stuff and, and things like got a real sense of like the, the visceral nature of that event for Americans um, and a sense of like what it felt like to them um, to have like political violence visited on them. And so then in sort of like the overthinking like undergraduate way that like young people think like um i just got that started like this sort of loop in my mind of well i think that political violence is bad therefore i think if i think political violence is bad we should do something about it Mm. um the war in afghanistan in particular is something about it therefore we should do it um and and then also i had a really strong feeling like i didn't really have a, a family military background of any particular depth. And so I just feel, well, you know, if I'm willing, if I think people should like young men and women should go and fight this war, it'd be disingenuous if I wasn't willing to do it as well. And so this didn't like, you know, come all through my head in the space of, you know, just a couple of beers, but that's, that's about a year's worth of thinking. And that led me to, to, you know, in um, enlisting in the army. Yeah. What, what did your family think? As you said, you know, you didn't have uh, great military experience in, 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 in your lineage. Uh, what did your family think of you joining? Oh, I think they were pretty surprised. Yeah, I think they were pretty surprised. Like, like but, you know, I'm a relatively sort of determined individual. So yeah. I think 
I think once it was clear that I was like serious about it, mm. um, then the, they were supportive. Um, but I think there was there was certainly a degree of, um, you know, I think when I finished high school, like they wouldn't have picked it, um, but neither would I have. To yeah, be fair. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I guess my, you know, my story is is, is somewhat similar in that. Uh, in that vein, obviously, I was I fled from Bosnia from a war, and then uh, you know I joined the army as well. And my family certainly uh, were surprised, to say the least. Uh, but maybe you can describe your life in the army, or maybe even just the, the beginnings of you know the training at RMC, and then uh, uh, because you you deployed pretty early on in your career, uh, so maybe we can uh, we can first delve into that. You know, firstly, what, what was it like at RMC? Yeah, absolutely. So I think. Um... Uh, was in the the illustrious uh, December two thousand seven uh, graduation <laughs> class, um, and graduated into um, into infantry. So uh, the first thing is it's probably worth saying about like RMC is like I I had a I was about to say I had a fantastic time at RMC, but I don't remember thinking that at the time. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember being pretty glad to leave, but like I looked. I look back on it really fondly and I think that um, I was well prepared um, intellectually, um, physically is like the easy part, but intellectually, physically, and to a, cert- to a, to a certain extent, like uh, morally and ethically to do what was asked to be in Afghanistan. So like I look back on it and think, so whatever, whatever happened um, to my experience of war, I think I was, for the role that I was asked to take on, I, I was quite well prepared by RMC, which ended up being pretty useful because, um, so graduated into, into infantry, um, went to the, um, was posted to the uh, 7th Battalion, the Royal Australian Regiment up in Darwin, um, and then found out like basically straight away that I was going to Afghanistan as a platoon commander. So I was actually on my like regimental officers basic course at the grenade range, I remember. Yeah, um, yeah. So like on like, you know, I'm still not even a qualified infantry officer and um, got me and, and two um, mates who um, had been in the same company and Almain company at, at RMC Duncher and got told by our OC, yeah, you guys are going to Afghanistan. Wow. Um, and so to be honest, like, my feelings about that at the time were very much like young professional um, officer and not particularly deep. Like, to be honest, mostly it was like an exciting professional opportunity and I just felt really excited that I was going to get it. Like, not not over other people, but like... Yeah, but you were I was going. Glad I, was, I was going and it well, didn't have to be other people like watch me be going. And I wasn't just going in some like... Um, you know, random staff role, I was going to be like an infantry platoon commander. It is at, um, the, at the pointy end. It is what, you know, ultimately you joined. Yeah, the- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so this came along with um, our, our deployment to Afghanistan was the first mentoring and reconstruction task force. So um, mm-hmm. involving sort of mentoring the Afghan army. And so the, the first, I think, and obviously there was sort of, kinetic actions and combat on the previous reconstruction task force locations but this was the first that sort of had like as part of its explicit role um in actively seeking to engage with the taliban through the ana um so yeah then a a period of pre-deployment training which while 
um, well run was like a blur. And then, you know, in I think September 2008, you know, on a plane and I remember, you know, getting off the, the back of the Herc in Afghanistan and you can see most of the mountains and a bit of the valley from like inside TK main base as, as you and lots who have been there would know and thinking, Oh shit. Like I've, yeah, I've actually got to do real. it now. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Exactly. And, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that uh, very shortly. I just want to uh, touch on a, on a couple of points you've made uh, so far. And that's that uh, you were well prepared uh, both morally and ethically and physically, as you said, is easy. What do you mean by that? How, how does, how were we all prepared? I think we were prepared in the sense that um, definitely. So I think largely like morally and ethically inculcated with like a sense of, of duty in a, in a, in a pretty, in a pretty healthy way. So in terms of like, it's a job of like service primarily um, and, and duty, um, you know, it's like quite naff, but like, you know, the motto of the regiment being duty first, like yeah, it's, yeah. RMC was very strong on, like, so I think ethics, particularly not, not lying and being honest, um, putting yourself and your own interests last and the interests of the mission and, and your men um, first. And duty in, in terms of, I think there's um, a protective mechanism that can come unraveled a bit later in that, when something's controversial or not like, you know, Afghanistan wasn't um, World War Two. like most things aren't like moral, most things aren't morally unambiguous. Yeah. And I think very few people would say Afghanistan um, was morally unambiguous. I think virtually no one would say that Iraq was morally un unambiguous. Um, but your focus was like on the bit of the war that you owned we did not spend a, a huge amount of time, you know, I didn't spend a ton of time thinking about like Afghanistan strategy per se until like I was home again, to be honest. But I had only one bit to do and I was well set up to do that bit. And then sort of like professionally and, and tactically, when stuff happened to me, I knew what to do. Hmm. And I had been exposed to things like that in training environments under a degree of stress enough times that when it happened to me for real, I had the confidence that I would at least do tolerably well. And I think one of the most important things in training is not just that you you intellectually know what to happen when, say, bullets start flying, but you have enough self-confidence that, like, you're like, oh, okay, I'll be okay. Um, because yeah. if you can't convince yourself, if you can't, the first step to convincing other people that you're going to be able to do a tolerable job or something is generally having been able to convince yourself. Yeah, convince yourself. Yeah, yeah, and and, yeah. and I uh, I totally agree. I think that's that's a huge part of training is to 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 inculcate that sense of confidence that hey, I've been through this, I've got the tools, uh, uh, I can do this, I can uh, I can actually yeah. go through. Uh, so so when you you then uh, uh, marched into your unit as a brand new lieutenant, just finishing your regimental officer's basic course, about to deploy into, you know, at that stage, a D war for the Australian army, taking over a platoon of, you know, presumably, uh, I think you said, and, and, and we'll mention both uh, uh, your appearance, your first of your TED talk, uh, TEDx talk in 2015, but also your interview with Jenny Brocky on, uh, on uh, SBS in Australia. What was that like being a young platoon commander, relatively inexperienced, uh, and I'm assuming a lot of your soldiers had already been to Afghanistan or at least to some of the other operational theatres. What was that like? 
it was so it was in, it was in, intimidating, but the, the, it's a good idea that they give these gigs to guys and girls in their early twenties. So, like in retrospect, I'm like, how did anyone take me the slightest <laughs> bit seriously? Like, what yeah. what business what were they thinking? What business did I have? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But yeah. at the time, you're just like, oh well, you know, the, this is what I've I was like, do. Well, I'll, I'll be, oh, I'll be all right. Like, this is told me I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. So, like, um, a bit of keen sense of responsibility, um, and then when you're like really early in a leadership, in your first leadership role, I think in the military certainly, but in other things as well, yeah. In those first months, you're sort of trying out styles a bit. Um, and so I'm relatively laconic and laid back. And so I think in the, I, it took me a while to settle into a version of myself and self-presentation that made sense for me. Um, but I was lucky to have, um, like, you know, corporals um, and a sergeant had like tons of operational experience. And that was like, you know, that was, that was a benefit. So you can look at it and go, you can look at it and be like personally intimidated or you can talk the, the view I mostly took was like, well, at least uh, go thank God some someone will have done it before. Like, yeah. 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 But it's a pretty serious responsibility. I mean, you're, you're, you're ultimately, you know, in charge of, of this platoon uh, and, and in this case, all men or presumably largely young men. Uh, and I think you, you've made the point a couple of times that, that, that appears to at least have a significant influence in how, uh, you know, how we send people overseas, that it's generally uh, uh, younger people. Uh, perhaps for us as men, it's, uh, you know, we have uh, a whole lot of testosterone during those younger years. And that's probably part of the uh, uh, part of why we, as, as you alluded to, uh, have the orientation to even go uh, into the fight. Yeah, I, I, I was definitely super conscious of I was very conscious of that. Like I, I talk about, um, you know, I talked about before being sort of, you know, didn't spend like an enormous amount of time on the um, the, 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 the strategy or like, yeah. you know. Yeah. The big picture. What, what, or yeah. It's certainly not of alternate paths. Like certainly not of like, you know, what could, what could we do to reach the same political outcomes without the use of military force? I didn't spend any time thinking about that at the time. But of course, like, you know, with the soldiers, like, um, you know, if you're doing like like a tactical training exercise, like blank fire or something, and it goes a bit like pear shaped, you, you're certainly super conscious that like if you f things up, that it's real, and like you can you can hurt people and people can um, die. Yeah, that was certainly like a, a weighty thing, and also you're very conscious like of the importance of projecting confidence and acting in a way that can give confidence to your subordinates. And that's like quite lonely um, and quite hard work, actually. And because you're, I think when you're really junior, you're probably less inclined to ask for advice or to show vulnerability than that is probably helpful. And like, I think you feel, whether for better or worse, you feel like there's some level of achievement you can before you can just sort of be yourself a bit. And I, I got comfortable in Afghanistan, but it wasn't till like the first time we'd been in a gunfight and, and, you know, I, I'm not sure how well I, how, how well I did particularly, but like, it wasn't obviously dreadful. So that was some confidence building, but like, you know, you you feel, uh, and there is a, a need to have like a degree of 
personal presentation that is about projecting the, the image of leadership that you want. Um, and that's work. If that's not what you're actually feeling, like that is emotionally taxing. Um, and constantly feeling like you need to personally know the answer straight away for what to do as opposed to seeking some counsel and eventually making a right, the right decision. I think that the latter is better, but it takes a while for you to sort of work out how to do that, I think. Yeah, and I think that's, a, that's, that's, that's an important leadership lesson right there. And I think both you and I will agree the Army does that exceptionally well, particularly as officers, we're uh, very lucky to oftentimes have uh, good senior non-commissioned officers who will, uh, who will help us <laughs> learn some lessons along well, the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Although I did have the, it was excellence, but a leadership challenge at times. So I actually had two sergeants um because which is an anomaly once, right? for a platoon um, is it that's an anomaly. yeah 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 so so for the listeners like that the, normally you'd match this sort of young lieutenant me with a second in command who's an experienced senior non-commissioned officer a platoon sergeant and i had a, a you know a great infantry sergeant but um to deploy we actually had um some cavalry um armored vehicles come with us and so my two cavalry vehicles and were, were, were commanded by another sergeant. And so I, you know, absolutely, you know, we had this fantastic organization with amazing firepower and capability, but I did have um, the leadership challenge of, of having two sort of, um, you know, finding the most appropriate role and like, how does that work? Because that is it. That is a bit different. But they were both the, the professionalism of both those individuals meant like it, it absolutely worked. Yeah. The but was the challenge for you as a leader, or for for them between them two, uh, uh, kind of recognizing allegiances to you, or, or, or where, where was the challenge? I think it, I think it's both, and it's it's. I think you've got to be really conscious of a leader if you have subordinate leaders of making decisions, and you know, there's always a bit of like a theater in the way we present ourselves is you know is is how the world receives us it's how the world receives us you can think things in your head but the world receives you in the way that you talk and move and act um and so i think i learned a lot about being really conscious of giving um leaders that worked with me the space to do particular things to allow them to project what we what we wanted to get across is, is much more effective than sort of me saying X is going to do this and Y is going to do that. And certainly a lot more than me just thinking it because that doesn't tell anyone anything. Like my, I might be comfortable by it, but look, you know, people don't know your thoughts, um, but typically I think it's um, show rather than tell um, is a more effective way of, you know, getting what you want across. Yeah. All right. So, so you then deployed towards the latter part of 2008 and you said you had a significant organization. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. And then what was your, what was your job, uh, uh, you know, for the uninitiated? Maybe put it into, into simple speak. What did you actually have to do on the ground? Yeah, sure. So the organization first, we had um, uh, nearly 50 soldiers. Um, so basically we had an infantry platoon of about um, 35 guys, which had four um, armored vehicles, four Bushmasters. We also had two um, cavalry vehicles um, with six guys. And then 
uh, on on effectively every mission. We would go out with the same uh, fantastic section of combat engineers um, with another armored vehicle to help sort of look after the um, explosive device threat. Um, and on top of that, normally like um, some artillery, an artillery individual to um, help us coordinate air and artillery um, and a medic and then, you know, all, all sorts of other, you know, people that needed to get out into the battle space to do a, a job, essentially, where my role was transport and security. And the role of our platoon as part of our combat team was that whilst the um, the specific guys in our battle group that were mentoring the Afghan army to fight um, with the idea being that the Afghan army would lead the fight with our support, we would help to provide security to them. So basically, um, you know, if the Afghans were going to like search someone's like house or parlor, like their house in a village, we might help with the cordon around it or we might patrol in depth of that. So basically to beef up security around the Afghan army so that they had the, capa the capability to build their level of, of, of knowledge and um, understanding because they were doing it, it wasn't training, right? They were doing it live against the live enemy. So essentially, what did that mean? Um, it meant essentially patrolling in the green zone um, as a formed platoon, you know, looking for ta the Taliban more or less. Um, and occasionally finding them. Yeah, and 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 for the episode notes, I'll also put links to your TEDx talk and also your interview with, uh, on ABC Insight. But you've talked about that during that time, during your deployment, you had been involved in a number of contacts um, and one particular ambush uh, that had kind of, uh, I think in your words, it really kind of changed uh, changed your life in many ways. What happened kind of more broadly, but then we can narrow down maybe into that one specific uh, incident. Yeah, sure. So um, I think the thing, the the day I sort of remember most um, or was the, the most influential was in, in late December um, in 2008 in the Troy Valley. And we were doing a, like a fairly standard um, mission for us at the time. And that's that the, the Afghan army were, doing some searches of, of suspect um, houses and we were forward of them just patrolling to, to put essentially sort of a bit of hard shoulder um, between that activity and, and, and where we suspected the Taliban were. Um, it was a cold, clear day and we'd been patrolling um, for a couple of hours and, and just had a sense that the, that the enemy were just the, the patterns of life and um, there were very, there was very little, few civilians around, and it just felt like something bad was going to happen. Um, but it felt like that for two hours. How, how did you feel that? How did you feel that? What, what, what do you mean you felt that? There's just, and it really was a feeling, not like um, it, it, intuitive. I think that once you spend, um, you know, we spent like 90, 95% of the time out in the field, right? So you get to understand what the village atmosphere is like when nothing's going to happen and then when it doesn't reflect that way so you know typically you see people in their fields like working cooking smells from inside compounds road traffic from like you know the ubiquitous like red motorbikes just people living living their life 
And when you don't have that, any of that, in what are, you know, like populated villages, then it, you start to, to wonder, right? Um, um, because that can be a sign of that there's a, a precursor for an attack. And why is that? Why, why could that be a sign? Just for those, again, who are not necessarily familiar with the context, why would that be a sign? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So essentially the, the locals live an extremely trying life and, and undeniably and, and for obvious and very fair reasons, if they get a sense whether they've been told by the Taliban or that there are, you know, unfamiliar um, fighters in the village, they will try to reduce their involvement in the conflict um, as much as humanly possible. And they'll do that, you know, typically in a way by just removing themselves to their homes or walking away and and not telling, like, you know, it's not they not come out and tell us typically, which is something I find I found frustrating at the time, but is is completely understandable now um, because in an environment of like great uncertainty, they're literally just trying to survive, and they will reliably do the thing that is most likely to have them survive. You know, another day or another week. And I think when you trying to keep your family alive, like you think in, in pretty short time frames and and um, and equally, you know, as as can be seen many, many years later, uh, where the, the place I patrolled, like, you know, still aren't secure from the Taliban. People had a hard time believing our promise that if they would be fully supportive of us, you know, they would have like some greatly enhanced level of security. I mean, we, we, we were not able to provide that. Tried, but were historically and persistently unable to provide the people of, of the region the things we said we would. And anyway, so they wouldn't tell you, but you could tell from their actions whether something was was up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's the, the, the idea of the pattern of life is different, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so then the, the patrol was basically nearly over in that, you know, I think the, the, the Afghans had, I think, just about wrapped up searching the, the compounds. And then there was, you know, some activity over sort of behind us. And then we, we were like, well, we'll go, we'll press ahead one more field. And so the fields that for those who, the many people who haven't had the joy of, of patrolling the green zone in Afghanistan, it's sort of like a, a patchwork of fields that are bordered by deep aqueducts. Um, because they use actually quite an, an ingenious method of uh, irrigation where aqueducts are built around every every field and they'll knock down the walls, like flood a field for irrigation and close it up to move the water along, water being water rights being um, a particularly important deal over there. So you're sort of, you were secure, you could secure yourself or secure, get cover um, from observational fire in these aqueducts, but out in the field you're open. So we pushed across what was going to be one more field um, and reasonably quickly came under like pretty intense fire in the open. And I remember going to ground. And so the, the first, the first, uh, you know, RMC drill sergeants would be proud. The first three seconds went all right, like run, run down, down crawl, crawl and fire. We got, we got that fun. I'm all well, all good. And I was just, um, you know, you could hear the whip of bullets and see bullets strike around me and around, like, you know, the half section I was with. And I just literally, like, my, my biggest recollection is thinking, I'm, I'm going to get shot in the fucking face and I just hope it doesn't hurt. Yeah. Um, being like, I, I 
this is like, it was really, really intense. Um, and then when I talk about, um, and I remember my, my vision like narrowed and the sound sort of, it was just, and it just felt like everything was in slow motion. Um, and my brain was sort of just struggling to cope with the whole idea this was happening. And I think this was just, just a, a, like half a second. And then I remember everything, like the world turns back on again. And I made, you know, the, I, I don't think it was a, it was a particularly insightful tactical maneuver, but at least I said something and there was like a wall off to our right. And I'm like, well, we'll go over, we'll go over there then. Yeah. Um, let's get to that wall. I suspect you didn't say it in uh, such a cool, calm and collected manner. At the no, time. no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I would like people, well, it'd be great for people to see in college just like the Pink Panther, like super chill over there. Like, no, no, I don't, I don't think I was. Chaps, there. let's uh, wander um, over so, that way. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and then so we got to the wall, the soldiers um, uh, with me dis- displayed sort of like, you know relied on their training great composure and courage and like covered each other's movement by fire and you know guys deliberately stayed out um in the open until someone moved around them and so then relatively shortly that that movement essentially um separated two parts of my platoon very shortly after one of my soldiers private matthew peppy was shot um very badly in, in both legs and so the remainder of the sort of next like hour and a half were an attempt ultimately successful to like evacuate evacuate a wounded casualty while we were sort of you know pretty well surrounded and, and at times having like a grenade range gunfight with the Taliban and so the sort of tactics and things aside I really did feel that it was entirely possible that we weren't going to get out or at least not all of us like that something terribly terribly bad could happen and so when we ultimately did and got matt to the helicopter and he thankfully survived that was like an extraordinary feeling of relief but also like a real discomfort like that wasn't like that wasn't good or you know that that came much closer to the edge um than I might have wanted to and that day was like you know I don't think there was anything sort of like magical about what I did I think the soldiers of my soldiers and 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 two of my corporals in, in um in particular performed with incredible courage and bravery and, and composure. What, what makes you say that? You, you, you single out two particular corporals. What, what makes you say that? What, 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 what did they do? Um, I think that um, they, so their names are Leon Gray and, and Nathan Webb to give them a shout out, but they commanded their sections in really difficult circumstances um, with a PHQ that was sort of split no real like like not often like the sort of arc of fire was like 270 degrees so not a great idea of where the enemy are except that they appeared to be lots of places right so, um, so, so is that what happened like, you 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 at least perceived or, or were surrounded is that is that what happened or what did it look like on the ground yeah like it's, it's 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 hard to tell we certainly perceived we were surrounded at different times we were fired at 
from all points. Um, but it's hard to know, um, you know, was it any one time, were they on all points? Because yeah. they were sort of like moving in, in small teams. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, some I, I always perceive, like my own personal experience of combat is some people like are really sure there was like X guys and they're here. I, I was never, I, my perception was I was never that sure about anything that happened in any yeah. of them. And I think reliably yeah. you can ask 10 people and get 15 answers. I'm not sure my answer is any more credible than anyone else's. But certainly, like, we perceived we were being surrounded and certainly we were fighting enemy was moving around and flanking us. That was definitely happening. And so I think that what my guys, like these corporals and the soldiers did was, like, everyone did their job. So focused on the things that they could do. So whether that's, like, um, you know, firing into your arc or being the, being the medic and, like, treating the, the, the wound. Like, the guy who, like, when Matt was shot, um, the soldier who initially put a tourniquet on him, like, you know, did so like underwater in an aqueduct. Like, you know, when you have to do, when you have to do hard things, you generally have to do them under stress or in like this in ideal way um, where not everything's perfect. You just have to sort of overcome it. And then to the degree to which I did anything, like I like kept it together just to like that. My personal recollection, how it felt was keeping it together, like just enough. But I didn't, I never really felt like I had a particular, you know, maybe that's a, a fault, a particular master plan. Like, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, um, and then we'll get out. It was more like, if we do this, we'll be good for like 10 minutes. And then we might buy some space and time to think about a new thing. But again, that makes sense, you know, it, it, because it is, a, a, you know, as you said, time stopped still for a moment. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, all hell's breaking loose around you. You don't know what you're dealing with. There's so much uncertainty. So, so in a way, it, it makes sense that you, you know, your, your leaps and bounds temporarily are, are very short. You know, let's, let's get to the next, you know, let, let's just get the, let's survive the next five minutes. Let's survive the next five minutes with a, with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, then the, the circumstances might change to your, to your advantage. There's, there, I think there's, there's somewhat of a, like, I don't know if it's a life lesson, but like a tactical lesson there about being a bit, being a bit patient. And like, you know, you don't have to solve everything with like a Napoleonic masterstroke. Um, sometimes, you know, Sometimes just just being around and being calm and not having some ammo left in ten minutes is is okay. Everything ends. <laughs> all things all things end. So um, yeah. How did it come to an end for you guys? How did that how did that uh, well ambush effectively come to an end for you guys? Um, so with the help of some very good and very close to friendly forces, deliberately um, fire from our. Um, as lives our cavalry vehicles, um, but also what was super helpful was um, the when the um, casualty evacuation helicopter came um, to pick up Matt, um, it was escorted by an Apache helicopter gunship, and I think by the time the Apache um, did its flyover, that the the enemy were unenthused about continuing the fight and also they they had taken some of their own casualties so we were we were able to to get back and you know and, and you know that as in you 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 know that they took casualties as in you could see or you yeah i didn't so like i did i did see enemy go down we didn't we didn't recover any bodies but like i did and you know certainly um other guys like confirms that they saw it i mean 
to me always like um the numbers and stuff like how many were there and how many casualties is like the, the blackest of boxes to be to be honest um so i i don't know there were definitely there were definitely some like i i saw some but um ultimately i mean it's a it's 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 not a it's not a matter of numbers. I mean, it's not a that that's not what the purpose is, uh, you know, about finding out. It's more about the feeling of what's happening on the ground. And and you opened this part of discussion with a feeling that you're about to get shot in the fucking face, right? And that that is that is that is massive. Right? That is a massive thing to be confronted uh, by as somebody who's. You know, not only young, relatively inexperienced, although trained, but now in charge of uh, 50 soldiers who are all looking uh, to you uh, to get you out of this shit fight, basically. Well, and I think like one of the things that, that really helps is I think, I genuinely think that I was more scared of doing a bad job than I was mm. of getting personally injured. And that might sound like a, I'm giving, you know, massive, like, like blowing up, pumping up my own tires, right? But I think, like, it's just a really, I think it's a really good sign of the training I had mostly. Like, it was just like at RMC, like, just beaten into us that, that like, your yeah. job, you know, and that becomes, it's not just like intellectual. In fact, it's far more than intellectual. It's beaten into your sort of personal moral code and ethical code that it would be an incredibly shameful and wrong thing to do to be more worried about your personal safety than the mission yeah. and the men. And that, that actually yeah. works. So I don't think I'm like magic for thinking that or even particularly good for thinking that, but I'm the product of like an effective training regime that, that got me to act that way. And when it came to it, you know, I was able to, I was able to do so. Um, when I, I very much doubt that, you know, um, if you would, if you could just have taken me, you know, four years before, just again, young man in his early twenties and somehow downloaded into my brain all the tactical knowledge and stuff, like, would you do all the same things? Like, you know, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so. You have to, if there's an effort to get people to act in this, in this way, um, there is a whole like structure and and logic and symbolism and lots of things play into the the idea of getting like an any number of individuals to do something dangerous all at once in some sort of vaguely organized fashion yeah and and, and you mentioned also uh, here but also in your in your ted talk i think the, about the camaraderie and and the, the bonds that are forged under 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 these types of circumstances what are these bonds i think it's just like there's just something incredibly bonding as a human about like shared hardship, you know, like that you, you have a tribe um, essentially that you rely on to live for, for all aspects yeah. of your living. You all eat the same food. You exist when you sleep, you're in a perimeter and you rely on the security of, of these guys watching over you while you sleep. I'm just like, as the platoon commander, I'm essentially like a guy, I've got a rifle, but like a dude with a dude with a radio, a map and a couple of China graph pencils, right? Like <laughs> yeah. all the actual fighting is done by the soldiers. Um, and so I'm relying on them also for my security. They're relying on me to make tactically appropriate and just decisions. Um, and I think so there's something really, when you're in an environment of great uncertainty, there's something really bonding about at least knowing who you can rely on like we don't know what's going to happen 
but like people on my team, I've got a really tight team. And I think humans are like a pretty communal naturally. Like we don't always live the most communal lives in the, 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 the modern sort of era. But I think when put into that structure, people um, thrive. And I also think it just became like really like heartwarming to see just some of these like young men, like really young men. Like, I mean, I was, I was young, but like, I think I was still in the top third, like oldest third for age. Do like really like great, you know, just do just really great things in terms of like, whether it be sort of acts of moral courage or just selfless looking after their mates or just, just, even just simple things like just being incredibly reliable. Like the fact that, you know, you know, one of the things I always um, set, like reflect on, like some people might think is a boring thing that I was always very proud of my platoon was that I knew if you could say, if there's a gunfight going on here and there's enemy like forward, left and right, that if I task three guys to look back, that they'd keep looking back which is not the easiest thing, right? Like, um, but that's the sort of stuff where, like, I think you start to feel that the organisation is in really good shape, but which I think it was. Um, but I also, I mean, one thing I reflect on later is that it was optimised, like, for a task. And so I think that then there's, there's, there's a cost. There's a cost to that sort of later. What, what do you mean? I think that it's... When tribalism relies to a certain degree explicitly or implicitly on like othering people, so so the mil- the military sort of like uh, you know big on this and it, like it helps build bonds of camaraderie. Like we wear different coloured headdress, we wear different coloured lanyards, we call each other different things. We have actually like a really complex social hierarchy of um, you know things where like you know lots of infantry people incorrectly and often quite boorishly perceive themselves at the top of. And so all these social structures matter a ton to how we bond um, and how we relate to each other in a military context. And I think that that the often the depths of those bonds are made at sort of the expense of the ability to interact with others like... Mm on neutral sort of grounds, like on their own terms. Like like one thing I reflect, um, you know, like the ability even to do something as simple as like talk to a member of the Afghan people, just, but without the prior that like what we all want here and what everyone's focus should be is finding out where the Taliban are. Like sort of removing like your impatience, like I need one thing from you and I need you to tell, you know, like we, everything. Yeah, it's very binary, is, um, right? It's it, very binary because it's a, it's almost a, a, a clash of different identities. You know, I, you're not necessarily part of my tribe, but we have what I perceive as the same goal. So let's, uh, let's just, uh, you know, do this transaction so that we can both go forward and achieve our goals. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't like necessarily need you. Yeah, exactly. I, and I don't need you. Yeah, to be every, everything not in tribe. your tribe, everything not in your tribe becomes a transaction and viewed through the moral code of, yeah. your tribe but like not everyone has the same moral code or focus and so when you when you break that tribe up and then go go home in particular then that becomes mm. it becomes hard and because um civil like normal civilians or as i would call them normal people yeah <laughs> yeah 
you know, don't prioritize things in the same way for very good reason that they haven't had to for like very specific circumstances. So I, I you know, I often, I think this is, is where we start, or like, you know, I mentally start such on PTSD stuff. Um, it's just, you know, I often think of it really, uh, and particularly the way my own PTSD, which ended up being diagnosed with manifested early in the piece, as just like a hyper adaptation to an environment that was no longer appropriate. So you can think about like, you know, it's a disorder as like pathologizing it. But if we just take that away for a second and describe this as a set of behaviors and thoughts, largely what happened is I think I, think I actually became really good at being like a platoon commander in Africa. In Afghanistan, at least by by the by the standards of, of like not asking for external like you know credibility, but but to myself, I felt like really confident that I could do a good job at it, and that then the behaviours that were rewarded both like within the tribe and by my superiors and by things that actually happened on the ground became the behaviours I was most comfortable in demonstrating, and they worked there, but that was that that there was like a pretty weird there um and not representative of the rest of my life so like so the the behaviors and the thoughts didn't match the context that you were in when you came back ultimately yeah exactly like like you know i think one thing that that's quite um i like the intensity of afghanistan i like that everything really mattered and there's a great like, deal of fulfillment because like whatever your sort of like political views on, on whether you should be there or not when you're actually there, well, you're there, and so you, you may you may as you 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 may as well do something useful, um, and certainly try try as best as you might to get yourself and others alive. So so it's it's intense, and so that intensity becomes a bit addictive, and then I think you can you start to give yourself a bit of self wraps about being like a serious person, um, but you know when you get home, like not everything has to be at that level of intensity. Nor should it be, because it's actually really emotionally draining. And I don't think that we realise the the degree to which, like, even our own ability to perform to that level is extremely time-bound. I mean, even just, like, you know, obviously, as everyone who's been there knows, the Afghan National Army's discipline wasn't great, right? By our, if you judge it by our standards, and to be honest, if you judge it by any reasonable military standard, the discipline wasn't great. But one thing I never didn't spend very little time thinking of back then is like, yeah, sure, but like they're here till the bloody war ends, like and afterwards. Whereas, like, I know when I'm going on leave, and I know when I'm going home, and I know when I'm going back to like main base TK. And so, there's just a lot of like context and and wisdom that comes like with age, where you look back and think of things with a lot more nuance. But to be honest, like. I don't think any of that nuance would have helped me be a platoon commander, particularly. Like I, I don't like the subtle distinctions would have probably got in the a bit in the way of a bias for action and a bit in the way of like having the confidence to like real clarity of clarity of thought. Whereas now I have the sort of um, you know it's I'm much older and I've got some kids and you know maybe two percent wiser and I can you know, think of complexity and nuance and everything. But no, it wouldn't have bloody helped at the time. Not really. No, I mean, and again, as, as we said before, which is that's the reason why we send uh, uh, young young men mostly uh, into those, those types of uh, operations, you know, those types of missions. That's, that's Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely. The nature. It's a, well, it's, 
it's a good it's a it's, it's a good system. I mean, at the point at which you've decided to go and fight a war, that decision is a separate issue. But at the point at which you've decided, you should you should fight it as well as you possibly can with the best uh, available resources that you have. So, so just um, referring to, to, and probably this is this is probably what you what you meant uh, in your TED talk. You mentioned that you loved combat, that the war is intoxicating, it was all uh, all consuming, that there was, you know, it was horrible, but also had a, had, had a beauty. Um, is that what you meant that when, you know, when you were in Afghanistan, you, you were just talking about that, you know, the, what it was like for you to be in Afghanistan, that you were operating at your peak performance, you were operating in a context where you had found what the rules were, what, what your behaviours had to be to achieve the right outcome. Is that what you mean by the war was intoxicating, that you loved combat? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like you feel like you're operating at peak performance. You feel like you're doing things that matter. So you're getting like intrinsic, constant intrinsic reward. You're you're, you're able to build, build a team to a really high level performance because very rarely for the world, they have nothing else to do. So they don't have any competing distractions. And actually, at a very minimum, you have high alignment because we cannot, if we can agree on nothing else, everyone wants to live through the thing. And you don't, you don't have a phone buzzing, distracting you. You don't have uh, kids to go and pick up from school. You don't have yeah, 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 exactly. You just got yeah. you just got this this one this one big thing. And also, like two months, I look back and like the the my position as an infantry platoon commander had a degree of prestige to it, which I liked. And you get into gunfights, and that has some prestige to it. And I'd, I'd be lying if I say I didn't uh, like that as well. And then probably you know I. Read, read too much like um you know like Hemingway's an undergraduate yeah. and had very like <laughs> just undergraduate ideas about being like going out in the world and doing big exciting manly things yeah yeah romanticized the view of the world yeah yeah an extraordinarily romanticized view of the world which sort of like um absences absences a bit of nuance but like gave me you know it was enormously integral part of my identity like when I was there, definitely. But even after, I, I spent like a significant number of years essentially like in mourning that like the most important impactful thing I'd, I'd, I'd ever do, I'd already done. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. And really struggling to see, like, you know, there, there, you think there were things, other things I'd like to do and want to do, but like not being able to imagine like a world in which I didn't spend like, most days thinking or talking about what happened in Afghanistan, which, which like wasn't particularly healthy. Um, and, you know, fundamentally became part of like what was like a mental, um, you know, a, a significant mental health distress that like I will have with me for the, for the rest of my life. Um, so was that, was that part of the, the unraveling, so to speak, or, or, or I think as you refer to it as the, 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 the long shadow of the war that, uh, followed you back was that part of it yeah i think definitely definitely because you become you ideal i idealize so there's a couple of things that happen together one i had sort of your, your traditional like um I, I think there were three sort of aspects of the, the sort of distress i was in that you could wrap a, a bow in and call sort of the ptsd and major depression diagnosis mm -hmm. that i've got so one was um, just like the persistent imagery of, of the conflict itself. Mm -hmm. So like flashbacks, um, like physical reactions, like um, being hyper-reactive. Uh, that was one part. One part and then two sort of 
aspects of, I guess, like a bit of like moral injury. One being just like, well, what on earth was the the point of all that? And these are these are two ideas that are a bit sort of juxtaposed. One being like, what on earth was the point of all that? You know, for the for our soldiers, um, for myself, um, a little mm-hmm. bit at the time for the people of Afghanistan. But to be honest, this is pretty pretty a pretty inward thought. Like, what like what what was the point? But you're right, um, yeah, and, and that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and then for me just like uh, just feeling increasingly distant from like the identity I was most happy with which was like as this like sort of warrior and the more distant I got from that my job and just being in civilian life and just became like really really sort of like deeply unhappy um so de- 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 depressed essentially and how long after you kept from when you came back or, or you know did, did it happen immediately or was it a, a, a- sometime later i think about six months after i came back the sort of it started unraveling in terms of you know persistent bad moods and recurrent imagery in my head but it wasn't till i came back in mid 2009 it wasn't till like late 2010 um that i was diagnosed and at the point of my diagnosis i was like very like you know off the rails uh, I was drinking extremely heavily. It was impacting my relationship with my um, then wife. And like when I went to the when I went to the doctor, I was at the school of infantry as an instructor. And when I went to the doctor to like talk to someone, it was just like this outpouring of grief because I was like, you know, I don't think I've ever felt truly suicidal in terms of like having an active plan but that's one of two times in my life i've definitely felt that without some sort of intervention that is beyond my capability to do like i don't know how i can do anything yeah yeah like that something bad will happen and i don't really have a fully formed thought of what it is but without like someone's got to do something right now and i don't know what that is to help me yeah. Um, how did you know you were at that point? How, how did you know that it, it, it's now it's time to go and see someone? I think it was just at the point at which I have found that when you're in mental distress and you don't share it with people and you're trying, you, when you're, you're aware that you're, um, you know, we, we spoke earlier about how, like, how people perceive you is in like words and actions not in thoughts. People don't know your thoughts. They perceive you in what you say and what you do. So I had a good, fairly well adapted idea that my my thoughts weren't any good. Hmm. Um, So I'm expending like enormous cognitive energy on making sure that my words and actions are like as appropriate as they could be. Um, And when I started, exactly. But as that starts to fall away, you become, like, you know, I was self-aware enough to know that that was like, you know, bad. Like, so for example, I remember just like being incredibly angry, over angry and emotionally and unhealthily angry at like a trainee um, at the school of infantry for some like tactical infraction of like minor importance. Because in my mind, this is like on, on the scale of sort of crimes, this is a 12 out of 10 you're going to get your mates killed. Not in the way that they, they tell us at RMC training, but like, like, like I'm emoting like you actually could have got something killed. Not in the level it should be like, 
like a seven out of 10 so that, you know, to raise his stress levels and have him understand that, that why this is important. That, you know, that there's, that, that there's a space there for a bit of like theatrical emotion. But I, like, this is like real honest to God, like anger for me. And so that inability to calmly perceive the world and just to react emotionally and not think was just so like everything was feelings and nothing was thoughts. And I just couldn't like move without this gigantic well of feelings being everything. And, and that's the point at which I needed help. I, I mean, I don't know what it would have happened if I didn't, but I, I was very conscious that I had to do something. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I mean, subsequently, you became thankfully, I think, for 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 the rest of us and for the for the army, you became somewhat of a spokesperson for uh, PTSD, particularly as a young officer uh, coming out and in many ways setting the standard for uh, your subordinates, your peers, your superiors, that this is something that we shouldn't we shouldn't hide, right? What what made you take that leap? Because that's some and, and and you know and this is something I've congratulated congratulated you for before because that takes a lot of courage coming from the environment that uh, you did particularly as an infantry officer uh, where you know physical and mental toughness perceived as the be all end all and because of the overwhelming perhaps not so much now but certainly in those days the overwhelming stigma that's attached to yeah. to, to 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 mental illness. PTSD. Yeah. So I think that um, when I, so I mean, the first thing I had to do is give myself a little bit of space to feel better. So like the, the coming forward, I, I think it's important to say like I needed to sort of build up some strength and sort myself out a bit before I did that. But when I got a little bit of brain space um, and also like, um, you know, one thing. This, I, sorry, sorry. At this stage, you're, sorry, just to clarify, at this stage, you had, you, you had started treatment, right? Yeah, yeah. At this stage, I've started, I've started treatment. I think by the time I came out in any, in any way at all publicly, like I'd, I'd started treatment. I think the thing to understand is that I, I was in treatment firstly before um, I came out for a while to sort of get the strength and sort of perspective and like brain space to even, even think about it. But one of the things that I reflected on was that I just didn't have like, it would have been easier to come forward if I'd had a role model of like, like no one else had, no one else had really done it, right? And like, to, to be clear, the way I was aware of, to be clear, I never expected that it was going to be like the 1970s and that if I said I had PTSD, everyone was going to be like, Oh well, like you're, you. you're a you're a you're a linger and like not talk. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think any of that was going to happen. But what there wasn't that I could see was a, an ability to say that and have people simultaneously be like, okay, he's got this um, this health issue he's getting treated for, but I'm fully I I still see him as like a competent professional um, who has a future in the army. That's what I I didn't trust, and so. One big thing that, that made a difference was, um, uh, if you remember General Cantwell, mm -hmm. yep. who had been the commander of Australian forces in the, in the Middle East and had also been, as, as a junior officer, because I read his book, had fought uh, on exchange with the British Army in the first Gulf War. And so he wrote a book about having, you know, like a pretty severe mental health episode. And... I, I admired him for his bravery, but what actually got me more interested was I think the response 
from the service community was like quite positive. And then I also, so that was one thing. And then the other was I was seeing, you know, certain of my soldiers having like severe mental health drama. And like, I was then became conscious, well, like, you know, I might think that I don't have a role model for this, but look, do they like, and what's my, and so all that led to like really a, a quite like, a kind of spur of the moment decision to um, talk about having, like what it started to talk about having had PC or having PTSD, chronic condition, um, like just on my Facebook and then getting like 120 comments of like really nice stuff from people. Um, and then most tellingly getting a, a two soldiers individually from my platoon telling me that they thought, like that they were the only ones from the platoon who had problems and like wondering what was wrong with them individually Mm. and just thinking, well, like that's such a great tragedy, right? Like, like we had completely unnecessarily, um, these guys completely unnecessarily had the, at least like, you know, it's not going to fix everything, but the pain of wondering what was particularly wrong with them. And so that led to darkness on their own. Yeah. 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 Like in, in, in like not, you know, with like not even anyone to talk to about, like not even again the bond of a shared experience. And so then, once I'd done that at that level, I became quite. I, I was a bit. I was just sort of like. It, I always found it uncomfortable, and it's not like I ever really wanted to be like. I don't know the PTSD guy, and like you know, but life happens and and i think mostly like your ability to do good things is as much like circumstantial as it is like some grand design but so this was it was never a grand plan but like once it was possible it was just i don't know i was like this is a thing i can do that's useful um and i was then it was like i was uncomfortable about it but just in for a penny in for a pound like so it was like well if i'm going to say it on facebook then i can go on tv and say it or i can go on you know be on like um an internal like defense video thing. And I think it gave me a lot of, first of all, I think it was just like the right thing to do. I don't think it was like a particularly like um, amazing thing to do. Like I'm not giving myself like props, but it was, it was the right thing to do. Um, and that made me feel better, which helped um, like feel useful, which, which helped I think um, in how I was feeling. What were your biggest fears about it, about coming forward and public going public? Losing the, losing the opportunity to have a future military career, which is what I wanted. And also just like the being felt sorry for. Hmm. You know, I used to talk about like like my nightmare scenarios constantly going through life with people just asking if I needed a cup of tea. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You all right, mate? Like, you all right, mate? And like, you know, because because at this time, like till till to like a really unhealthy extent. Like I think now, like I look one of the things I've done in my life was I was an infantry officer. And I'm I'm very I'm very I'm very proud of that. I really enjoyed it. It was very incredibly formative. But like I'm not like I'm not an infantry officer now. And I, like the first thing I say when I describe myself is not that I'm an ex-infantry officer. Yeah. I'm like a like, but at that time, like that was that was me and anything that sort of came away from that was just like this not it's just not the way i wanted the world to perceive me yeah and, and what would the so so were those fears well founded when you came out i mean what, what how did it all un, uh, unfold 
Like, I think actually, like, um, I, I was very well supported by the army and, and really like virtually like sort of like everyone else, um, which is, you know, we can all only tell our, our stories, but, um, I know at the school of infantry, um, the commanding officer and, the um, OC at the time, and really in, 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 in a great piece of luck, Dave Allen, who was recently the, the command sergeant major of forces command and was my RSM at seven RAR, um, was the wing sergeant major um, at the at rifle wing at the school of infantry. And so I had some people around and, so, and guys that deployed with Afghanistan, like Ben Gooley. I had people around when I like, first got sick who, who knew me. And like, I got a lot of comfort from the fact that they, they knew their prior was that like, I was like credible and competent as an infantry officer. I think it might have been really hard for me to say anything if, if I didn't have people that like at least knew that. And then I think that the the best thing that happened with the way the army treated me was that that I was treated mostly as like the professional that I was. Um, and we started from the basis of like, you can do everything except maybe some things you can't, not from a basis of like, well, you're fundamentally broken and useless, like, what, what, you know, what are things you can do? So I actually think that um, I'm not sure how developed the army's like policy was towards this at that time, but certainly my interactions with people as humans were like, were like pretty good. Like most of the, the pain I felt about it was, you know, in sort of a pretty self, pretty self-generated, um, to be honest. And then, you know, I, I got like pretty extensive treatment, which was like painful and, tedious at times because it's hard work but um ultimately you know improved my um like, like had i stayed in the army i would have been able to deploy and do all those things and continue to to, to have a career and for, maybe for those who, who who find themselves in in having similar thoughts or 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 in doubt as to how they should take their own uh, uh mental states forward what does treatment look like? And, I, and I'm completely conscious that it's, you know, highly individualized, right? Uh, but what, what did your treatment look like? Yeah, sure. So um, it had a couple of um, arms to it. So for the vast majority of the past, oh, what is it now, 10 years, I have been taking um, any antidepressant medication and which I went on like quite early in my treatment into because I required a bit of like mood, essentially mood stabilization. So for um, some people, it in, includes, you know, going to a psychiatrist. So like a, a medical doctor and potentially prescribing some medication. Um, and then secondly, like some talking therapy, um, which is typically like cognitive behavioral therapy which basically, like, if I can sum it up in a sentence poorly, um, because I was the recipient, not the giver of the therapy, thank, thank God, um, to learn how to remember things without reliving them. Right. So that a, a memory doesn't become, you know, we, can, we as humans can remember images, even painful ones, at a much more muted level of emotion than we experienced in the first time. Um, but sometimes for people with post-traumatic stress disorder, they, they're not really experiencing memories the way we commonly understand memories. They're experiencing the memory as if it's happening again. 
which can be sort of like very like disruptive and threatening. So it's not like you're never going to forget that it happens. You actually need to remember it happened. You just need to remember it as a memory, not as like a, a present event. Yeah. Which I guess, and just to, just to clarify a point, and perhaps that's a, that, that, that's an important point to make. What you just described there ultimately is PTSD. Right? Yeah, it is essentially. You yeah. know, you can you you can't delete the memory, right? But what PTSD ultimately is is that, you know, when you remember that memory, you end up re- reliving all the emotions, sounds, smells, yeah. everything else that is associated. Is that is that, is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And your your brain sort of doing that as a protective mechanism to give you all the and then fills you up with um with cortisol to an adrenaline to give your like lizard brain is giving you or the, the least developed part of your brain is giving you what your body needs to put up like a fight or flight response um but that's not helpful because you might be in like aisle eight at coles like looking for like pasta sauce and so and w- one thing that i would sort of add to that is like the how I think about like PTSD now, like which I, which I still have, and like you know, I have um, had I had a bad run of mental health in um, twenty eighteen, um, so I wasn't even in the army anymore. Um, that resulted in me like spending a couple of months away from work and and going back on medication. So which I'm still on now, and I imagine I'll be on for the rest of my life. Um, so it was a, a reminder that this is sort of like a chronic thing you always have is like the way I see it is like my brain works a bit differently to how it might have if I'd never gone to Afghanistan, mm. but in good ways as well as bad. So like, I certainly think when I look back on how I was before this, there are things that I've just learned about myself and the world that. I don't know, maybe I could have learned them some other way, but this is how I learned them. Um, like, so, you know, a degree of like empathy, like I'm, mu- I'm a much more empathetic person than I was before all this happened. And I think much more able to, to see, you know, seeing in myself, you know, I think I've some, done some things to like some moderate degree of success, but I've also been at times of like, of like really, really pronounced distress and unable to do very basic things at all. And so I guess having had the experience of seeing that that can happen to me, I, I, you know, I like to think I'm much more able to see, to pick the good from the bad in others in, in like a much more nuanced way and, and really to give people the, the benefit of the benefit of the doubt generally um, and to generally assume like good intention. Um, because I think and my sort of being public about my own mental health started from a base of just sort of taking a punt that most people were pretty all right. That sometimes institutions are bad at things, but like most people are pretty okay. And most people will act decently if you give them a chance. And that uh, I've been like, that decision has been like rewarded like time and time again um, for me. And I'd like to think I try to like apply that in, in my own life and that my own experiences say that, you know, that that remains a way to go. Yeah, no, that, that, that that's powerful, and, and that's a fantastic insight in, in, into life. I think. I mean, it's a, you know, you you you've been dealt some tough cards, but you've realised that and you increased your own level of self awareness. It's allowed you to build bridges that 
perhaps would never have existed otherwise between you and others. Uh, and I think that in, in itself is a, if there is a silver lining, that's a, that, that's a monstrous one, you know, particularly now as a father, now in the civilian, in the civilian world where uh, people haven't necessarily, thankfully, experienced the things that you have, the fact that it's, that it allows you to be more empathetic because we're all we're all struggling, right? Yeah, <laughs> we're all trying to, we're, you know, we're, we're all trying to uh, have, create perceptions in people through our actions and behaviors that are more often than not, I would say, not very congruent with our mind, right? We're all we're all suffering somehow in some yeah, way in our mind. Absolutely, I, I know, Maz, that you you and I are, are the, the fathers of um, young children, and you know, I one thing that's taught me is like. You know, like everything is hard. Yeah. Like simultaneously wonderful and hard. Like, but like life's life's actually like really like bloody tough for everyone. Sometimes fantastic, but a lot is asked of us. And like the life you have is like that. Like that's all you. You know, the thing with with cards, like that's all you've got, right? Yeah. Like if my experience is yeah. all I've got to work with, um, it's all I'm ever going to have to work with. So you may yeah. as well get on the front foot with it. And that, look, that comes after like many years of me feeling like, you know, there were many years of me feeling sorry for myself and drinking a lot and that not being helpful. So it's not like easy to come to this conclusion. But, you know, on, on things that you don't have any choice over, of which like your personal history is one, um, make the best of it, make the best of it that you possibly can. If for no other reason, then what else are you going to do? Yeah. And that's no, that's a, a, a it's a wonderful, wonderful way to sum it up. And I think that's uh, it's it's kind of taken us to, towards the end of uh, of our chat as well. I think appropriately so. But I just want to maybe finish on the fact that as of now, end of last year, I think we've got nearly five hundred uh, veterans uh, who've uh, you know committed suicide and have, and have and have you know died as a consequence of their service. And undoubtedly, I think you made a very uh, was that with um, I think it was with uh, Jenny Brocky. You made a you made a very interesting statement that kind of left untouched there. But you, you said, "Let's wait until the war ends, right, uh, to see how many sufferers we truly have." Because of all the things you've discussed, you know, people are uh, are not inclined to report, you know, when the war's still going on because they all want to go back. Uh, you know, uh, we all yeah, want to yeah. go and deploy and do the job, right? Uh, now that the war is largely finished. You know, perhaps, perhaps you 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 saw something that uh, many didn't. You know, with so many casualties, let's call them that, because that's what they ultimately are. Uh, if there are those who are listening, both in Australia but also overseas, uh, who are struggling uh, with uh, recurring thoughts, emotions that are making them feel irrational or act out in a way they wouldn't, what would you say to them? I would say, firstly, that um. Like it makes complete sense that you feel the way you do. It's not you're not weird or strange or broken. Um, that through having experienced sort of like loss and pain and fear and discomfort, um, that that's upsetting. In fact, it makes you like profoundly normal and human. And so that the first thing I'd say is like, it's in that sense, it's okay that you feel like this. It's like it's normal for you to respond to war in a way to find it confronting and shocking. It says fundamentally good human things about you that you are confronted by it. But then I would say that you are important and you have a life that that matters and that it's really hard to talk to people, but 
my instinct is that if you reach out for help, you'll be surprised positively far more than you'll be surprised negatively. It doesn't mean that people won't disappoint you. Like it does not, it does not mean that. And it doesn't mean it'll be easy, but there are definitely people who, who, who want to help and are, are willing to because your, your life matters. All people matter, but you've also done, um, you know, a tremendous thing in giving, you know, some of your youth and time in, in the service of something bigger than yourself. And so, like, we owe it to you as, as like, not just, like, as an army, like, yeah, as a, as a society. society. Yeah. We owe a, a deep debt to help you live, like, the life that you want to live. And that's that's hard work, but it's it's possible. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I obviously, I'm not going to be chosen to come up with like a, a, a pithy three word slogan because I think I just spoke for five minutes, but you know, <laughs> that, that's what, that's what I would, I would, I would say to them. That's wonderful. And that's a, that's a, I think a wonderful message uh, to leave it on. I know I've taken far more time uh, than we initially agreed. Uh, uh, no, it's Ash. my pleasure. I just, I just have long winded answers. It's my brevity. No, it's, <laughs> no, no, it's absolutely wonderful. No, I think you've, uh, and I, and I thank you both for being so candid and open about your experiences, but also for uh, still being the leader that I remember you as back from RMC and, you know, doing those things that uh, you would hope others would do. So uh, thank you very much for that. I think it's a, it's a great testament to your character and your moral courage. And I look forward to the next time we catch up uh, over a beer. Fantastic. I do too, Maz. And cheers for this. This is a good podcast and great initiative. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.